Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Christ in the Classroom. I'm your host, Jose Gonzalez. Joining me tonight will be Dr. Matthew Ramage from Benedictine College. Uh, looking forward to uh, spending some time here with you this evening. Tonight's topic is understanding the Paschal Mystery, a very fitting topic as we are very close to Holy Week, um, in which we will really begin to enter into these events. I'd like to begin um, this evening by reading a, a very short verse from the Gospel of John. Uh, this is in John chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat, but if it dies, it produces much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. I don't know uh, how many of you have experiences with um, going on uh, retreats when you were uh, teenagers or were involved in retreats for teenagers, um, particularly the, the main one I'm, um, I'm referring to is uh, Tech Teens Encounter Christ. Um, in addition to that one, um, many other of those types of weekend retreats really focus in and zero in on this uh, this great mystery of the Paschal mystery. Um, the fact that, that, that in order to gain our life, we must lose it, that we must allow ourselves to die to gain eternal life. And, and really, um, this is a, a very profound mystery. It's a mystery that is really con um, almost contrary to what the world um, teaches us. Um, it's contrary to what our students encounter every day, um, that, that we must endure suffering to experience great joy. Uh, you know, but this very mystery is it, it's stamped into creation if we think about it, right? So think about the changing of seasons, right? If we think about the changing of seasons, um, fall, winter is, is, you know, everything's dying and, and, and death comes upon the earth, so to speak. And then spring comes and it's new life and, and you know, and it's everything's in, in its fullness at summer. And it just kind of goes through this cycle. So, so the changing of the seasons very much, um, they depict the, the Paschal mystery within creation. Um, those of you that are parents, um, particularly uh, if you were uh, the woman that was giving birth to that child, you, you experienced the Paschal mystery in a very real way as you went through the labor pains and the difficulty of labor and there bore, bore this, this amazing life, right? You, you know, myself as, as the husband watching my wife go through labor now four times, it, it's this miraculous, amazing thing, but man, I can't, I, I never want to trade places with her. Let's just say that, right? So, so you, you see that and then, and then it's almost like within like a second, she forgets about the pain as the baby comes into her arms. It's very much death to life. It's a very beautiful depiction. But so, so we see the Paschal mystery stamped into um, the way the Lord does things. And so I'm excited to dig into this mystery tonight, particularly with um, uh, a friend and colleague, um, Dr. Matt Ramage, who is a professor of theology at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Um, so Dr. Ramage, are you, uh, you there? No, I'm with you, I think. Yes. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm excited about this. Um, as a little subtitle there says, I wrote a book on it, but you know, I just been something I'm thinking about for years. Uh, I have lupus, I have all these autoimmune disease things. And, and so it's something that touches me personally, but it's, it's a matter for every Christian. So I'm excited to share what little insight I have and really using the wisdom of our popes as our guide tonight. Wonderful. Well, thanks. Yeah, uh, Dr. Ramage and I have had the pleasure of working together in person many times. Um, one of one of the first um, um, I asked to to speak with. So, gosh, five or six years ago, we've been we've been doing this, um, and a lot of great connections. So, uh, Dr. Ramage is just up the road for me. I'm in Wichita. He's in Atchison, and so he has taught several of of my former students. Um, up at Benedictine. Um, and then additionally, we have a connection. We were, we were, we both spent some time at the university of Illinois um, back in the day uh, for, for undergrad. And so um, I started there and then transferred to Franciscan, but he, he did, I think you did your whole undergrad mm -hmm. at the U of I, didn't you? Wonderful. Yep. So, so cool, small world connections of how the Lord brings, brings people together. So uh, let's, let's dig in here. Um, Matt, why don't you begin just by just kind of digging in, what is a, a basic definition of the Paschal mystery? 
Well, thankfully, I didn't have to make it up because the catechism gives it, which is nice. So yeah. the, the, the catechism, as we have laid out here, uh, defines it as Christ's passion, his death, his descent into Hades, his resurrection, his ascension. So all these events we think of of taking place, Holy Thursday night, going into Good Friday, through rising on Easter Sunday, and then ultimately his going back to the Father at the ascension. So you think about his ordinary earthly life, uh, the mysteries of the rosary. So you have your joyful mysteries that surround the birth, right? But here you have what surround the sorrowful and glorious mysteries. Now, if you want to look at this in terms of the Bible, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word Pesach means Passover. And that refers in the book of Exodus to when the angel of death passes over the houses of the Israelites that have the blood on their doorposts. That's a sign and a a foreshadowing of Christ's cross. And it's interesting that in the Greek language, which the Old Testament was eventually translated into, and which the New Testament is written in, the word Pascha uh, is translated Passover, and it means to suffer. So it's fascinating to me that these two are related because in Jesus' death and in his resurrection, two things are going on there that are related. One is, He's passing over from death to life. Like the Israelites who had to cross through the Red Sea and the Egyptians died pursuing them. The church fathers will say, we have to pass through the waters of baptism with Christ and die to our old way of life and emerge as new creatures. But death, of course, involves suffering. So that's where the other aspect comes in. The Paschal mystery is this grain of wheat that Jose was mentioning. It has to, quote unquote, die, right? It has to fall to earth that has to decay but in the structure of creation itself jesus picks up on there's a mystery that he will fulfill in his own life death and resurrection and that in turn becomes essential to all of our lives that we only find ourselves as vatican ii said through giving away of ourselves in this paschal mystery of our own yeah and i I think it's great one of the things that i'm often reminded with this with the definition of what the Paschal mystery is, the inclusion of the ascension. I think oftentimes we stop at the resurrection as the story, which is, which is, you know, mind you, fantastic. But the ascension is a very important piece of this whole, of this whole mystery that, that needs to be kind of um, included, included in this, in this. Yeah. And I have a picture of Pope Benedict there teaching. I'll return to him in a few minutes on the ascension. What he has to say is pretty interesting. So we can break down two dimensions of the Paschal mystery, as in anything when we're interpreting sacred scripture, there's the literal sense and the spiritual sense. So literally, that is, on the author's own terms, the Gospels, it refers to the events in Jesus' life that happened at a historical period. You can go and and set foot in the sepulcher where Jesus was buried. You can go in and, and kiss the empty tomb if you're lucky enough. I've seen priests who celebrate mass in there. So those are the historical events that happened 2000 years ago, but there's a spiritual dimension. So the spiritual dimension of this is how it applies to our lives today, because important as the history is, and as interesting as that might be, really the reason Christ came to do all this was so that we can imitate him and through his grace, find our own happiness, holiness, and eventually heaven through the Paschal mystery in our lives. So we can see how that applies here as we proceed through the different aspects of the Paschal mystery. Great. Yeah. So let's dig into each of the, the let's start with the literal and, and go through the, the main events here. So I think we know Good Friday, right? It's pretty, pretty simple stuff. Uh, tragic, but simple. He died. And you can also think about this in terms of the creed, what parts of the creed we say he was crucified, died, was buried on third day, he rose again. Now, the physical sense, he dies, right? And, and John has him dying and the the synoptics have him dying at different hours to meet different aspects of the mystery. So in John's gospel, he dies the same hour of the Passover lambs to show that he's the true lamb of God. Very fascinating stuff there, but the spiritual sense can easily be missed. So the, the spiritual sense, Pope Benedict says in his reflection on this, Good Friday also reflects what we might call the day of the death of God in our culture. This is really haunting for me to think about. Uh, I was just reading Bishop Barron, who noted a study that millennials born from 1981 to 1996 
half of those baptized in those years no longer practice the faith. They're, they're part of what we now call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And this, of course, is a real danger for our families and our students. We, we want to deepen their faith in Christ, and despite our best efforts, sometimes they fall away anyway. But this is, this is the situation of our culture. And so just like on Friday, it appeared to the apostles that all was lost, that their, their rabbi failed. He was supposed to restore the kingdom, and now he's dead. That's what we're experiencing. And, and a lot of people, they, they, they're just, why become Catholic? Why remain Catholic? We're not blaming those people. We shouldn't blame them. It's a real difficulty. So Pope Benedict seizes upon this, and he says, yes, um, our culture is going through a, a sort of Good Friday right now, but let's not give up. It, it can turn out just like the, the worst sin ever committed is the crucifixion of God on Good Friday. That led to the greatest good ever, his resurrection and redemption of us. Let's bear in mind with hope that whatever is going on in our lives, someone in your family losing the faith, you're going through an illness, you're doubting the faith. Mother Teresa, guys, if you read her posthumously published book, Come Be My Light, she went through decades of darkness where she wondered, God, are you there? Do you exist? And you would never guess a saint said that stuff. But what she did was she kept loving. You know, she kept doing her prayer, her liturgy, picking people out of the slums. Point being that we're going to go through our own Good Friday in Christ, the letter to the Hebrews says, is such a high priest that he can sympathize with us in our Good Fridays because he's gone through all of it already and redeemed it. It's beautiful insight. I, I, I also um, think an, another really great spiritual insight about Good Friday is to stay close to Our Lady uh, when we're going through difficult trials. And especially if we get frustrated with the culture or um, I know that there, you know, um, sadly, there's been a lot of um, just difficulty in the church in the last few years, right? Where, where we have bishops and priests that, well, there's some great ones. There's a lot who have, who have not, they've, they've let us down mm -hmm. and you think about it. Well, there were a lot of apostles that were not doing their job on good Friday and they ran from the cross, but, but, but there was our blessed mother um, and St. John, the apostle and to, and to, to just look to them and, and stay close to them um, at, in those moments where we feel like everybody else has run away, you know, or everybody, you know, or, or nobody understands that suffering. So, and you know, uh, one of the things about the suffering and darkness, the, the catechism picks up on this in its section on prayer, which I really recommend reading, easy reading, deep reading, beautiful reading, is it's those moments of darkness, which paradoxically can become the greatest moments of light and holiness and happiness if we bear them with Christ. So, you know, like my dad died five years ago. That was the toughest week I experienced psychologically in my life, but it was also one of the most beautiful. Um, and I mentioned having lupus, you know, going through open heart surgeries and kidney transplants and blood clots. All of that's terrible, but I have found through trial and error that if you live it in Jesus Christ, it's about how you respond to it. It can become the greatest moment of unity within your family and your relationship with God. Uh, I mean, to be sure, I can picture in my head, right as I speak, sitting in the operating room, waiting to be cut open, wondering if you're going to come out alive. Uh, there's the old saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. That may not be 100% accurate historically, but there is some truth that nothing will wake you up like realizing you might die tomorrow. And, and so that's where these moments of suffering in our, our lives are gifts. And we have to make a conscious decision of faith to see them as gifts. And if I may add one more thing, Jose, so one of the things that um, I think a lot about in the virtue of faith is this relationship of faith and certainty or certitude. And Pope Francis had this really striking comment a couple of years ago where he said, it's good to doubt. Now that could be misconstrued, right? That could mean it's good to reject the church's teachings. That's not what he meant at all. He meant if you're a thinking person and if you're really trying to live it, you're gonna run up against challenges. And if we're evangelizing, we're going to meet with confrontation. So by that, he doesn't mean reject the church. He means that that actually unites you to Jesus Christ, who himself went through darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what Pope Benedict, for his part, will do, he puts it a little bit differently, but in a complimentary way to Pope Francis, 
he says that that doubt or experience of darkness can yield a greater certitude than we had before if we persevere through it. It might not look the exact same as it did before, but your faith will be transfigured and transformed into something even more profound than it was before. Beautiful. Yeah. The next one, this is All right. This. So this is one that's really hard to understand and you don't really hear a lot of catechesis on it. He descended into hell and it depends on what creed you use, the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed. Um, so what is this hell? I want to explain this, guys, by looking at this ancient icon of the church. So this is a really powerful thing. You've got Jesus Christ standing there in the middle, and he has two people rising from their, their graves he's raising up. And what you've got there is Adam and Eve, who represent the first parents of all humanity, and then all the prophets around them. And what he has done is Jesus Christ has broken the bars of Hades, the bars of hell. See, in the ancient world, and this applies to the Greeks, the Jews, many cultures, they envisioned the underworld as where the realm of the dead was. And Jesus breaks this down to show, look, you don't literally go into the earth when you die, right? You get buried, but eventually your bones disintegrate, and etc. So it's not that hell is a place under earth, but that's symbolic of Christ has gone down, he's entered into the utter darkness, he has experienced every forsaken moment in our lives, every pain, I have pain in my arm searing down it right now from my lupus, okay, that's a minor pain, but maybe you lost someone in your life, or you lost, or whatever it might be, um, he has been there, and what did he do, well, hell is separation from God and from communion with the living. So Christ experienced the totality of that. And Pope Benedict has this beautiful line that he says, where love incarnate goes and light incarnate goes, he transforms that darkness and cold to warmth and love. So it, it's not that you don't die, right? You have to die. But now that you have Jesus Christ having descended to the dead, he has made it so that you don't have to die in isolation. You can die in holiness and, and dare I say, happiness. Imagine that, that you go to your deathbed. It doesn't mean you want to want to kick the can, but you, you go there with joy. And we see this in the saints. I remember a, a story in college. I read this book about some French nuns during the French Revolution about how they went singing, chanting to the guillotine. So it, it may not look quite like that, but you've seen people die a holy death before probably. And that's what Jesus enables us to do because he's been into our hell. Now, just to be clear, there is also hell, hell as an eternal damnation, but the word English word hell is referring to this realm of the underworld, the realm of being dead. So um, I just want to throw that out there for people who wondered why we speak of hell, hell is something different. And that's where theology is kind of fun to have as a job, because I get to spend an hour with students in class explaining how that all developed. But um, so anyway, we can follow up on that, Jose, if we want to, because there's so much to unpack on that. Yeah, uh, just on kind of a spiritual note on this, uh, I mean, this is essentially what we're called to meditate on during Holy Saturday. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I think in, in the last couple of years, for me personally, I've started trying to make a concerted effort to spend time like entering into Holy Saturday, because sometimes a lot of times I feel like we we do Good Friday and then we, we want to skip right to Easter. Um, and, and, and our Holy Saturday is spent literally like cleaning the house and baking for Easter. And we, we, we miss that mystery. You know, I mean, obviously some of those things need to happen on Holy Saturday, but to take the time that like, okay, we're still in the thick of it. And I, um, there, there's something really beautiful about, um, I don't know if beautiful is the right word, but there's something really striking, I guess, about entering, going into, I like to go into a church on Holy Saturday at some point where it's empty and the Eucharist isn't present. And there's that, really enter into that mystery of Christ isn't here, but he's, but he's there. Like he is, he is defeating death right now. He is in um, the depths bringing, um, you know, conquering, um, conquering this, this great 
tragedy of death and suffering and, and, and to spend time on Holy Saturday, a little bit of time, at least a little bit, you know, with that mystery, I think really makes then Easter Sunday that much more powerful. You know? Yeah, I agree. I have not mastered that practice myself, but you know, I'm not saying you can't have fun on Holy Saturday at all, but it's right, always right. an awkward day because like, you know, it'd be a good time to take a vacation, you know, go to the beach and, um, but I, I just, something is a little inconsistent in my own spiritual life with that because it's not a time to have fun per se. And I'm not trying to dictate to people how to live their lives. Um, but yeah, I, I think you spend time with some scripture, maybe read the passion account that day. I like the going into the empty church. You're like, start to genuflect and you realize, wait, nope, don't genuflect. The Eucharist isn't actually there. Yeah. Uh, and that's just really spiritually, I, th I think, healthy for us. And then uh, you know, there's always going to Easter vigil on Holy Saturday. So you don't have to spend the entire day and night <laughs> on yeah. this Saturday. Uh, but I was talking about this with my wife last night. So we call those three days the Triduum. But it's not really three days, is it? It's, it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I mean, part of the reasoning there is that in the ancient world, you had the day began the evening before. So Thursday night to Friday is one day. And then Friday night to Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday. So it's really three ancient days. But that, that Holy Saturday is part of the mystery. Right. And, um, and I, from what I've seen, and I don't pretend to be an expert on this, I don't think anybody is, is that um, it's, it's in there. Why is that in the creed? It's Christ completely redeeming all of our um, isolation and opening the gates to paradise. So there's another theological truth being taught here. It's that no one is going to heaven except for Jesus. And now his grace can work in all kinds of amazing ways. He could give his grace before he even became incarnate because he's also God. So, you know, the saints like Moses, so he can do that. But whoever is saved, it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beautiful. So next piece then, um, now we come, now we come to Easter Sunday. So. All right. The good news. So I have a little icon from the catacombs in Rome of uh, a whale type serpent figure spitting out Jonah from the earliest times. That was an image of Jesus resurrection, which he himself gave when he says that uh, no um, sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So the sign of Jonah is just as he spent three days in the belly of the whale. So Christ will spend three days in the belly of the earth. And it's even more apropos as an image because the Jews conceived of the underworld as a waterous, watery, cavernous pit. And so Jonah's in this whale for three days and Christ says, that's the sign. Okay. I've got miracles. Yes. But the definitive answer to death and to all of your problems is dying with me and rising with me. Now, uh, one cool thing about this is uh, Pope Benedict has some really beautiful language, which he's borrowing from Pope John Paul II, where he calls the resurrection man's definitive leap. It's his leap into a whole new level of existence. So you think about the history of life on this planet there, and in the universe, there's nothing and there's something. And then from something to life and from life to rational life, well, there's this even infinitely greater leap. Yes, we're all the image of God, but we're called to be divinized as the church fathers say, to be completely conformed to Christ's divinity as the, the church fathers say, the son of God became man so that the sons of men, us, might become God by grace. That's St. Athanasius. And we don't ponder that a lot, but we're called to, to share in Christ's own divinity. And if, if I may, there, there's this beautiful image of the liturgy, which uh, I actually forgot, Jose, if I have it on a later slide, but it's the water and wine. And um, uh, I may come back to that in a minute. Yeah. But I, I want to talk a little bit about what this leap looks like. Now, to be frank, guys, we can't know what it looks like. We can give images. So when you're talking end times, which theology calls eschatology, end things, you can suggest and evoke. And one of the greatest places to read, I highly recommend for meditation, is 1 Corinthians 15, where St. Paul begins by saying, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is in vain. Like, this is where we're hanging our hats. But then he goes and has this beautiful and fascinating explanation of the risen body. And he says that your present body is a physical body, but your risen body is what he calls a spiritual body. 
And now sometimes it's easy to think of heaven as we're being like angels, but we're not angels in heaven. We have a body, but it's a spiritual one. Well, what does that mean, St. Paul? So he gives us a couple indications. He says it's, it's sown into the ground like the seed he's evoking. Sown into the ground, perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. And he then compares the different types of bodies. So you think of uh, the ancients called the stars bodies. You think of the glory of the sun. Well, the sun's glory, your resurrected body will be that glorious and arguably more because the sun's inanimate matter. You're, you're in the image of God. So ponder how glorious you will be when your body is transformed. And, and another neat image that I like to use for this, that's inspired by this passage, and it connects to Jose's from John 12, is you think of just nature, um, an acorn. Acorn goes in the ground. What's it eventually become? An oak tree. Or Jesus' own image, the mustard seed, tiny seed, becomes this huge plant, or any number of things. I'm a gardener, so I'm really relishing right now seeing my perennials pop back up. There's the rhubarb coming up. I've got some chives. The chives are already full-blown grown. Okay, so that little thing, that seed doesn't really look like the plant, but it actually is the very same thing. It's the baby plant. So when you're eating peanuts, you're eating little peanut plant babies. But um, on a more serious note, that's your body. That body goes in the ground. It's just little insignificant looking seed that's decaying. But when it rises, it will be the same substantial body. You will still be you. But think of how much more glorious that whatever 50, 100 foot tall oak tree is compared to the seed. That is the faintest image, but a good real image of how glorious our bodies will be in heaven when they're no longer bound by space and time, but at the command of our spirit, where we do what our will and our intellect and our, our love commands us to do in perfect union with Christ. Yeah. Well, that's, that's some, that's some great stuff to think about and meditate on. I, I think it's, it's also really important to meditate on, on, on the beauty of the resurrection um, and the, the promise of the resurrection in the midst of difficult times uh, so that, so that it gives us hope in those moments. Right. Um, you know, uh, Obviously, we we've been doing it. We've been doing a family rosary um, for, for Lent. We really started getting into that as a family, and 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 I, I at first I was like, I was like, it feels a little weird to meditate on the on the on the glorious mysteries during Lent, but I think it's also important to meditate just as much as as you do on the sorrowful mysteries to point and give you hope for what we're preparing for, you know. Kind of reminds me of Laetari Sunday that we just had. You have these glimpses of victory and, and triumph that are interspersed wisely by the church in our liturgical year. Uh, it also reminds me of St. Ignatius of Loyola, the great spiritual master, who says, when you're in times of desolation, darkness, you should think about times of consolation in the past when God was working in your life, sort of have what we call biblical memory to remember God's great deeds in your life. And then have hope and know it will return. Like it may not look the exact same, but God will still be with you. But then also he says, when you're in the moments of triumph and happiness, prepare. Because as Jesus says, you don't know the day or the hour the son of man will return. You don't know when you might get sick, when you might lose your job. You never know. I saw a tragic story in the news. There's a lady driving down the street with their kid a small airplane lands on it and kills the kid. She survives. I mean, who can predict that, right? So you've got to be ready for those type of things and, and easier said than done. But that's why we, we keep constant vigil. Paul says, pray always. Um, you never want to let a, a day go by without remembering death, St. Benedict, uh, the founder of our um, you know, institution says. Um, and, and another thing, Jose, if I may talk about this third point, is this resurrection actually has applications for all of creation. That's something that we don't ponder as much as we ought to, probably. Yeah. And, you know, Pope Francis wrote an entire encyclical letter, Laudato Si, on care for our, our earth. But um, 
I just gave this paper at a conference a couple weeks ago that I've been meditating upon for a long time. It was this passage in Romans 8. And there are many other passages in the book of Revelation chapter 21. St. John speaks of there being a new heavens and a new earth. And he's just quoting Isaiah the prophet. But anyway, in Romans 8, St. Paul says that all of creation is groaning in travail. That's birthing imagery. So it, it's like a, a woman in labor pains, which is tough. Like Jose, I can only say I've seen it. I haven't experienced it. But I've had some very painful things done to my body, which might resemble it. And I, so I can sympathize with people screaming, maybe the typical, you know, the quintessential stereotype, at least. So th there's this pain in creation, he says, is going through that right now. But at the end of it, he teaches, all of creation will be renewed and enjoy the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Now, Pope Francis, again, had a funny comment a few years back. He had said something about perhaps, um, you know, your, your dog will be in heaven. And we, we guys, we can't know the answer to that question. But here's something we can pretty well hang our hats on. Everything in this universe is created by God. There's only one God. Everything is good. Everything's a reflection of God. And if it's created, it exists already in God in an infinitely more perfect way. So all of that, in some way, like St. Thomas Aquinas teaches, will be present in heaven. What will it look like? Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. So I don't know what it will look like precisely. Um, but it, as I try to explain to my little kids, and this might apply to some of you as teachers, you know, uh, they love dinosaurs. We were just in Utah and, and they ask, are there dinosaurs in heaven? And well, I don't know. I mean, they're not going to be eating us if they're in heaven, but whatever is good about that dinosaur is in heaven. And you'll have this infinite number of things besides God himself. That's enough. But you have all these created things to rejoice in, let alone the other people, the communion of saints from all space and time. Uh, it's just magical. It, it's, it's, it's amazing to think about that. So if you have a resurrected body, there has to be some venue to live that resurrected bodily life. And, uh, you know, on a personal note, I stopped being able to run. I was a runner. Well, maybe I'll be able to run in heaven, play basketball. Maybe I'll be able to finally dunk basketballs in heaven. But if it's not literally dunking basketballs, God's promise is that it will be infinitely better than that. Wow. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful um, things to meditate on. So now we come to the, 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 the final event here to, to reflect on in the Paschal Mystery, the Ascension. So, yeah. so on a, that. a neat image here, guys. I highly recommend a video series from probably five or 10 years back called AD, The Bible Continues. There was a series called The Bible that came out before it. And I put up this picture uh, of Jesus and this guy behind him because in the Ascension scene to, to that show, it's the best one I've ever seen. When you think about Ascension, sometimes it's easy to picture space shuttle Jesus. And I don't know how it went down. I mean, the way that Luke describes it in Acts chapter one is that a cloud took him up. But as Saint Pope Benedict, I should say, says, it's not about where heaven is. Heaven is not up in the sky, right? That it's a whole other dimension of being that we can't even conceive of. It's so glorious. It's real, but it's not, you know, physically up there. So that's not the issue, but you've got to describe this somehow if you're St. Luke. And he describes this Jesus as rising back to the father. Now this image is powerful because it has this guy in the background being an angel. And I really found that helpful in my own life because I love Raphael, but his angels are these chubby little guys. And that's not really the biblical portrait of an angel. Angels are the warriors of God. They're the heavenly host, which means the heavenly army in, uh, in Hebrew. So when you say at mass, if you ever go to Latin mass, or if you like right now in the, in mass, at least at our parish during Lent, we get the Latin, holy, holy, holy. And it says Deus Sabaoth. Well, that's actually a Hebrew word, which means God of armies, spiritual armies. So you think of St. Michael whipping up Satan. 
Okay, so bottom line is this, this portrayal of the ascension had Jesus walking up what looks like a heavenly staircase. And neither is that a perfect video camera of what occurred, but it, it succeeds in showing the power and majesty and, and, and uh, a martial, a military quality to this, that he has conquered death. He's the victor. But one of the things that Pope Benedict says that struck me and I found helpful is this has a spiritual sense that applies to us. And it is the ascension reveals our vocation is to attain the altitude of God himself. That is, we are called to become by grace what Christ is by nature. We're called to become participants in the divine nature, 2 Peter 1, 3 to 4. And, and it's almost so good we don't believe it. We don't hear it enough. Uh, but that is our vocation. And incidentally, guys, I teach a class on the church and world religions, and I helped write a book from Sophia. They're not paying me to say this, FYI. But I helped write a book to um, on the church and world religions. And uh, one of the things that I really like about this teaching of the church is that it fulfills all these things that those religions are looking for. Uh, a lot of like religions are looking for you to become a god or to um, realize that your inner divinity or things like that. Well, the church has that. You're called to participate in the life of the Trinity. As Paul says, if you're a child, you're an heir. You take on everything God himself has. That's how much he is love. He gives himself totally to us. And the ascension is Jesus paving the way and we will all God willing, follow him. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's so beautiful and powerful. Um, I, I I think this it also ties into the fact that one of the one of the things I used to tell um, my students, particularly when I taught um, the the topic of Catholic social teaching and, and, and would talk about the dignity of the human person, mm -hmm. how this event is is just is just one more piece of evidence for the dignity of man and the dignity of our physical being because Jesus the the second person of the trinity when he goes back to the father he could have shed his body he could have been like okay i'm done with this like this was it was real it was fun being man but now i'm going back to my to my pre-incarnation form right but he chose to hang on to his to his human bot to his to his human body and 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 returned to the father in that form which is really powerful stuff if you think about it so so let's uh kind of dig into to more now now we're going to dig into more i guess the more the spiritual the application piece of of the paschal mystery in our everyday lives um flowing yeah and this is where i had the the slide i was thinking of the water and the wine so you guys know when you go to mass and they have the offertory you bring up the gifts then the priest may or may not say this out loud he says as he pours the water into the wine by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. Well, that is symbolic at that moment. The water and the wine, that little bit us pouring into the divinity of God, we mingle with him. So this mingling of water and wine is a physical symbol of what we're called to do. Now, chemically, if you got too fancy with your, your, your science here, we know the way the bonds work. They, they literally do restructure one another. So all images fall short. Okay, I'm, I'm a science guy. But um, the, the point of it is really beautiful that we are called to be so united to him that we're not separable. And how do we do that? Well, St. John Paul II calls it the law of the gift. And he, he helped write this text from the Second Vatican Council that he liked to then quote. And it goes like this. Man the only creature that God willed for his own sake can only find himself through a sincere gift of himself. So we only find ourselves through a sincere gift of ourselves. Or if I may give you a couple Greek words, guys, just because they're poetic, theosis, becoming God, can only happen through kenosis, self-emptying. That's the word Paul uses in Philippians chapter two, when he says, Jesus did not deem equality with God a thing to be grasped at, but rather he emptied himself and took the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. But because of this, 
God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in the heavens, on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay, so we can only achieve that glorification, though, by self-emptying with Jesus Christ through giving of ourselves. And, and it's easy to think when you hear divinization becoming God, oh, contemplation, floating on clouds, levitating, it sounds really all mystical-ish. But really, where you become most divine, if you may put it that way, is by becoming most human. You get down in the gutters, Mother Teresa, and pick up those people. You, you change your dirty diapers as a parent. You discipline those rowdy kids in the lunchroom. You know, all these different things we have to do that are legitimately annoying, painful, stinky, you name it. That's when you are becoming most conformed to God through Jesus Christ. So that gives a dignity to suffering. It's not just something to be avoided. We even have a thing called redemptive suffering and mortifications where you, you literally, mortification, put to death your, yourself. It, it's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing where you're freed to be totally forgotten others by sacrificing those things that, that keep you from God or just to tell God, I love you more than these good created things. And in all of this, our model is Jesus Christ. Just as Adam fell and Adam caused death, Jesus, Paul tells us, is the new Adam. And, and Mary, we'll talk about in a second, is the new Eve. So Jesus, what does he do? He takes on the curses of the fall. He takes on the thistles and thorns on his head. He sweats blood. He, he gets stripped naked. And in that naked state, unlike Adam, he gives of himself for his bride, the church. And in fact, he gives his entire body and his entire self when he says, this is my body given up for you. And in the Eucharist, we then receive that crucified risen body and become one with our divine spouse. So there's so much, right? We could give an hour on that. Uh, and I hope that plants some seeds of meditation and spiritual fruitfulness for uh, everybody listening. Wonderful. So the Blessed Mother, you said you wanted to touch on her. How, how, how does she fit in to all of this? So this painting is by Caravaggio, pretty famous artist, and it's the death of Mary. It's actually an open uh, theological point for the record, guys, whether Mary died or not. She was definitely assumed. Pope Pius XII declared that as a dogma in 1950. But it's funny when he declares it, he says at the end of her earthly pilgrimage, Mary was taken up to heaven, body and soul. Did she die or not? I don't know. I have my theological opinions. I think it's a fun question. But let's just say that for a large part of the tradition, they held she died and, and she certainly suffered. So in this painting, she even has swollen feet. Mary has died. What does that tell us? That tells us that the person who was sinless still went through these things. Think about that. So yes, you bring about some suffering and death because of your sinfulness, but Mary is the ultimate model because A, she had no sin. B, it's easy to say, well, Jesus, he's God. Of course he could handle it, right? But Mary is only a human. And what we then learn is that we're called to go through what Mary went through. We're not going to be assumed straight up into heaven because we have sin. But what happened to Mary will happen to us. She's a forerunner for us. And Christ, her son, paid her back with this unique gift of grace, but then she had to conform to it. Right? She had to live it out. It wasn't done for her. It wasn't easy. And so it, I just think she's a beautiful model in my life to think about. Um, and I'm not great always at my Marian devotion. I don't really have a ton of, and my wife is the same way. Some people are more Marian than others, but I can relate, if not as a mother, I can relate to look, sometimes you have suffering that's not your own fault. And the question isn't, why do we suffer? You can't always know the answer to that. The question that Mary answered with her life was, how do you suffer well? How do you offer that up to Christ? Because it's really ultimately not having to have pain and death that's the problem. Those are gifts. Those conform you to Christ and ultimately get you to heaven. The real essence of the matter I've found is, how do you suffer well? And 
the intercession of Mary, the imitation of Mary along with her son, that shows us the path. Now, it's just a matter of getting ourselves down to it, falling, getting back up, and always keeping our eyes fixed on, um, on these figures of Jesus, Mary. So in a nutshell, we are all called to share in the Paschal mystery with Mary, with Christ. Uh, none of us are exempt from it. We may wish that was the case, but the fact of the matter is we live in a world structured Paschally. Uh, could God have made a world that had no death? Probably yes. Yeah. But what's fascinating is that the relationship of original sin and death and suffering, God foresaw all of it. So in, in the Easter vigil, we exclaim in the, the exult at the opening song, oh, happy fault, oh, necessary sin of Adam that gained for us so great a redeemer. So despite the fact that God doesn't want us to have pain, he has already accounted for it. He sent the remedy. He sent the grace. And he has a particular cross. This is what I tell my students. He, he has a tailor-made cross for each of us. And he knows exactly what you and I need for our conformity to him. But whatever precisely that way ends up being, creation is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. But the good news is part of being cross-shaped or paschal is that it always ends in resurrection. If only we take up that cross get up the hill and are willing to die with him. So that's what I uh, would sort of leave you with on the presentation portion of this as some of my pointers to how to live the Paschal mystery and see that in, in the saints, especially Mary and in Jesus Christ himself. Beautiful. Wonderful, wonderful things to reflect on. A lot to think about as we enter uh, Holy Week. Really, it's a it's a tough mystery. It's a tough thing to embrace. I think sometimes, particularly in our modern world, where we where we want to run away from suffering because we 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 just want Easter Sunday. I mean, you know, um, there there's a reason um, <laughs> there's a reason uh, that you know st stores don't really do much marketing for for Good Friday. It's all Easter Easter candies up, and we're gonna go right into Easter. We're gonna ignore the the, the reality of of what brings about Easter. Uh, some thoughts for class, because I think this is important. Some just some some things you can do with your students to help them meditate on on the beauty of the Paschal mystery, right? Um, have students reflect on how they have experienced the Paschal mystery in their lives. Have them think about it. You know, all of our students come from so many different backgrounds, I'm sure. Um, and, and some of them may have suffered more than others, but I can tell you that even the ones that probably haven't suffered a lot have experience, right? If they think, if they take the time to reflect on how have, how have I experienced death and resurrection throughout my life, right? How, to, to prod them to think about that and apply it in their own lives. Um, reflect on the various scriptures, passages, and stories that shed light on the Paschal mystery. Be in scripture with them. Read these stories. Show them. And there's even Old Testament passages that point to the Paschal mystery. And a lot of the, the, even the Old Testament figures were living the Paschal mystery before it was, a, was, was quote unquote a thing, right? Because the Lord was preparing them. Like they experienced death and resurrection. All of this was stamped in from the beginning. Uh, reflect on and discuss sacred art images that depict, depict the events of the Paschal mystery. L use art to, to help them draw out. Um, Dr. Ramish shared some, some great pieces, but there's so much out there um, that you can spend time with your students comparing, contrasting, looking at, reflecting, using using images to help them grasp the mystery of these events. And then lastly, I would say pray and reflect on the sorrowful uh, and uh, glorious mysteries of the rosary with them. Um, you know, pray those prayers, have them sit with our Blessed Mother and have them engage in, engage in, the, in the beauty of these mysteries. Um, I would encourage you to do all those things. I'm sure many of you are doing a lot of these things, but uh, if, if you're not, um, you know, great ideas to, to, as they, as you uh, prepare to enter into Holy Week with them. So Dr. Ramage, I ask the question I ask every week of everybody that comes on. So what, um, this is our pop culture connections. What are, uh, um, what are your recommendations for uh, using the, the things of the world out there that we can engage our, our students with, whether it's on the Paschal mystery or just any topic of the faith? Wow. Um, 
I have so many thoughts on this, but I, the easy answer for me is film that connects to this. Uh, this would be a bit much for a, a smaller, younger age, but the Passion of the Christ movie, I think a high school audience could watch that. Um, but beyond that, the, these series, there's the AD series, there's the, the Bible series. And again, they get the whole Old Testament salvation history in a nutshell through those. Um, and this is not yet Paschal Mystery because they haven't gotten there yet. They're only about to start season two, but I'm now highly recommending to people this series called um, The Chosen. It, it, it was produced yeah. by these, these Christian guys and uh, the Jesus figure happens to be Catholic. And I had a student recommending this, recommending this, and it was on YouTube at the time. And I'm just like, okay, student, college student, watching a YouTube video, you know, people always send you wacky things. So I wrote him off until a colleague philosopher recommended it. I said, okay, I'll listen. And it was really good. So I, I encourage you, that'd be a good Easter present for the family even. It would be a great Easter family gift, but also any of these, we own the Bible, we own the AD. And uh, of course, there's always the passion, the Christ. There's a way to spend Holy Saturday or Good Friday. And again, I, passion, the Christ is a bit much for little kids, I think. But, uh, a, so when I was at, when I was a youth minister, I actually, I did a, I did a, uh, it was a, a Palm Sunday retreat with my high schoolers. Like, you know, it's R, so you got to get the permission slip even in high school. And um, yeah. uh, I spent, we did, we watched the passion in chunks and we would pause it and then I'd have them go reflect and spend time in silence with it. And it was a really, really cool day. Cause it was like a, a mix of watching the passion and then silent retreat and they loved it. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's a lot to meditate on there. Um, there was, um, there was, um, there's another suggestion. Heidi actually suggested she thinks a cool book for this topic would could be The Robe by Lloyd C. Douglas. It follows the author's imagined story of the man who wins Jesus's robe when the Roman soldiers cast lot, which is kind of cool. Um, someone mentioned Jesus of Nazareth. I think that's another great movie. Um, it, it, it's often forgotten because it's so much older, but I think that does a great job. Uh, another book that I would actually recommend, there's a there's an author called Louis DeWall, and he writes kind of historical fictions on, on the saints. Mm -hmm. uh, and he wrote one called The Spear, uh, which is the, the story of the of the Roman soldier that pierces Christ's side and has a mm -hmm. has a conversion. And it's very speculative, but it's a really cool kind of background on this historical figure um, that really kind of brings in some of the theme, these themes. And so I, I would strongly recommend that one. It's called The Spear by Lewis DeWall. Heidi, any questions for us this evening as we, as we get close to wrapping up here? I've got two in my chat box as we have time. Um, okay, let's start one and see how long it takes us to answer and hopefully we can get to both. So Sounds good. All right. So the first one is as an adult, it is often difficult countercultural to embrace suffering. What are some pointers for discussing suffering with younger children? I'm thinking of a recent conversation with a third grader who endured a significant event and responded with the words prayer never works. Wow. wow. I've never had that response, but that's not because I, yeah, uh, that's tough. I, I'm going to talk about my own kid a little bit first. So I have a kid, you know, this is not going to be listened to by my child. So I just hope it'll be okay. But he, everything's darkness to him. Like he's, he's always negative, you know, and um, I, I fail every single day of my life trying to help this kid who, for whatever reason, suffers more than others. And where I, I know I've failed is I won't blame him for it, but I'll say like, well, so-and-so your sister gets it right. You know, don't suffer basically is my answer to him. And at the end of the day, the all I can really do is be there with them and uh, to put it in one way put up with it to put another way understand like for whatever reason this kid he he suffers more than other people and and while you can blame them for it it's probably not their fault and so we try to just spend more time with them and I, I kind of wonder Jose will be better at this than me I bet because he was actually a school teacher but I, I wonder if part of the answer then is just being there and spending particular moments with that child. But um, yeah, I, I think sometimes 
particularly with a topic like this, it's very hard and I don't have a turnkey answer for it other than you can explain, but to show empathy and show um, just loving concern. And if they, if that's their response, you just say, I'm really sorry. That's been your experience. Can, you know, if there's anything I can do um, or, or just be with them, be there for them, show them, you love them, show them you care. Um, and it's going to take time. Like I, I can't imagine any kid that it might be going through something extreme um, in that amount of time at that young of an age. Um, we may not have the, the right answers for them. Uh, and, and, and it might take longer than just their exposure there. I think a lot of times as educators, we're there planting seeds and loving them through those moments and they may not get it right now. And that's okay. It's okay. We can't put that on our shoulders to, to totally be, uh, uh, to be responsible for that. So um, great suggestion. I asked negative kids to look for something positive that's happening around them or to them. It takes the focus off the negativity. Yeah. So, so find something to be thankful for. Right. Um, but yeah. Uh, Heidi, next question. And then I'll, we can hopefully squeeze it in before we wrap up here. Sounds good. All right. So the last question is teens are drawn to the secular culture of life where they are told that the only thing that matters is feeling good all the time as instructors. Uh, how can we convey to our students that they also have a cross to bear sufferings to endure and that it is not a bad thing. I think again, similar answer in that um, life is going to teach them <laughs> um, that that's not always going to work out. Um, I think it's, it's the slow giving them, telling them how, how it goes, but also modeling it for them, showing them, showing it in your life. How has, how has that proved contrary in your own life? Um, that personal witness is so important uh, and, and taking the time to just slowly, but surely plant those seeds. Uh, I think life will, will um, yeah, it, it's going to show them differently at some point. Uh, and hopefully they, they've got, they, they get it. I think if you think about it, we all go through that at some point. Right. Um, I, 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 I think every one of us um, has gone through a period in life where, where we're only focused on worldly pleasures um, to some degree or another. Uh, and we want to avoid suffering. I think avoiding suffering is, I think acknowledging that avoiding suffering is a normal gut reaction. Suffering is not a good thing. We shouldn't go looking for it. However, it's giving them the tools that when suffering comes their way, they can embrace it. And it's, and it's going to come their way at some point, right? But I think a lot of times of being a teacher, especially to teenagers is about patience, right? We're not going to convince them. We're not going to win them over right away. Um, you know, there were kids that when they came in as, as freshmen for me, by the time they were seniors, I had won a few over, but not all of them. Um, and and I, I've got notes down the road once they're adults, like, hey, remember that thing you said in class? And so so mm -hmm. I encourage you, uh, be patient, fast for them, pray for them, right? Um, do do those things um, on their behalf as well and, you, and unite that to Christ. I think those are, that's, that's the best we can do. Uh, so next week we'll be back. Um, we are, we will be live on Monday next week um, from 6.30 to 7.30. And our topic is going to be, we're going to look at teaching the faith with current events. Uh, if you want to dig deeper on the Paschal Mystery, if you liked this topic, we're going to go deeper on this topic on Tuesday, March 30th from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, 9.99 for most for you, uh, CITC 50 for 50% off with Dr. Michael Barber. Two, that'll be a two-hour session. We'll include breakout sessions and more um, uh, implementing of lessons and playing with lesson ideas in that one. Um, if you need a certificate for today, remember CITC, uh, sophiainstituteforteachers.org slash CITC certificates. Uh, and then if you, for themes on today's lesson and the other, uh, on, on today's topic and, and other topics, CITC, slash CITC lessons, Sophia Institute for teachers.org slash CITC lessons. Um, and then please um, subscribe, give us a review um, to, to the podcast. Um, leave us a, leave us a rating if possible, help us spread the word about this, um, about this endeavor and 
please check out our website if you haven't done so already for lots of other free resources, sophiainstituteforteachers.org. Thank you all for, um, for, for listening, for joining us. Dr. Ramish, thank you for, for, for joining us this week. Very beautiful reflections, insightful things to think about. Uh, God bless you all. Thank you and have a wonderful evening and hopefully you'll have, you'll tune in again next week. God bless. Thank you for participating in this week's episode of Christ in the Classroom. In order to request a professional development certificate, please visit sophiainstituteforteachers.org slash CITC certificates. In order to access the free lesson with today's theme, as well as show notes, please visit sophiainstituteforteachers.org slash CITC lessons. Thank you and God bless you.